Bicycle racing is stupid. Fight me. Okay, maybe the title is a little provocative, but I assure you it's tongue-in-cheek. But I'm willing to bet that every person that has ever pinned on a number has said this to themselves in the middle of a race. I know for sure that I have, on probably more than one occasion. It usually goes something like this. Why the hell did I sign up for this? I paid money to do this? This is stupid. But the bigger question here is more about professional or Olympic level racing where big money can be at stake. It's no secret that competition at that level is filled with cheating and questionable techniques and tactics that are on the verge of cheating. Ever since I saw Greg LeMond in the Tour de France, I've been a fan of professional and amateur racing, but sometimes I find myself feeling cheated. Is racing stupid? Should we be fans? Should any of us be racing bikes? That's what's on my mind. Welcome to another episode of Bicycles to the Rescue, the podcast that explores all the ways in which bicycles are a simple solution to many of the world's problems. As always, I'm joined here in our podcast world headquarters by Kevin Ang, the co-producer of the Bicycles to the Rescue podcast. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Brendan. Welcome once again. It's worth noting that Kevin has also pinned on a number or two as a time trialist and cyclocross racer, so I'm sure he will have some things to say about this as well. And also joining us today is my and Kevin's cycling coach, Brian Larivere, the mastermind behind BJL Coaching. I'm hoping Brian will bring us some perspective and help me take this off the ledge. Hey, Brian, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me again. Cool. And I, I think we had an episode that may not have got, uh, may wound up on the cutting room floor uh, that had to do with uh, training indoors and we didn't get it done until last spring. I may resurrect that one out of the dustbin and uh, put it back together for some indoor training. Uh, but on we go. Uh, so before we dive in, I just want to remind you that Bicycles to the Rescue is brought to you by the Cyclecraft Cycling Center located on Route 46 in Parsippany and on the World Wide Web at cyclecraft.com. Okay, so let's get into it. Kevin, let me start with you. Have you ever had that experience in a race where you questioned your sanity? Uh, yeah, in fact, I, I can I can think of a specific occasion. And Brian, I think you were you were here for this. Uh, you probably I think you were here at this race too. Um, it was uh, it was Hippocross 2019 or 18 18. Um, so it was so this is this is late October, I believe. Um, it's, this is in probably central New Jersey. It's in a farm field, basically. Uh, it had been raining the entire day and night before this race and was still sort of spitting in the morning when I got there. Um, so the race course is literally down the side of a hill, of, of a downhill farm field. And by this point, the mud is literally halfway to my knee deep in some parts of the course. Um, and I go out from my first sort of recon lap and I drop down past this fence and it's literally just one big giant downhill mud pit with some tape in it, delineating a sort of coherent course. And I'm like, Oh great. This is going to be fun. Uh, so I, I barely get through one practice lap before it's like my bike is already, completely clogged with mud. So I'm like, well, I may as well just, you know, I have, I have a race in an hour and I need to actually warm up properly and not through this. So, so I do the whole, I do my warm up routine and then I, I start the race and it's just by that point, there already been three or four races gone through already. It's just a big rutted mud pit and I can barely pedal through probably 60% of the course. Um, and it's just, and at one point I'm, I'm going down and I'm, I'm going down this hill and at one point there's this little dip where the mud gets a little deeper and I just pick the wrong line and I go freaking ass over tea kettle and I end up flat on my back in this freezing cold mud and and I'm just like and that 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 was my why am I doing this moment sorry I had to throw that in there I've been dying to use sound effects and I finally had an opportunity uh, that that was my and that was my why am I here moment Cause it was like, this is not like at some point it was not fun anymore. And, uh, it was, yeah. And, and at that, the, in, at the end of that lap, I almost considered dropping out early, which I never do. It's like my, my thing is once I start a race, I will finish it. Um, but I, that was the first time I'd ever considered not finishing the race. But when I crossed the line, I heard the, the bell for the last lap and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. So I slogged through the last lap and finished the and race. You finished. And so, so Brian, <laughs> I know you've, you, how many years have you been racing? 
I've been racing for uh, 27 years now. 27 years, and you still and you still like it? No, I don't. I love it. I have to say. <laughs> Good. All right. Yeah. So, have you ever had that that moment when you're in the middle of a race and you're scratching your head, going like, "What am I doing out here? This is nuts." I, I I'm really going through my memory banks, and maybe I've just done an exceptional job of blocking those times out. But I mean, I can I can recall with extreme clarity, very, very difficult races that, you know, it, they were silly conditions, but I never once had the thought was of bike racing is stupid. Like <laughs> maybe this course could have been designed a little differently or when you had the, the one off back, back when cross kind of hit its heyday, it, it full stride around here and you'd have the the uh, race promoter accidentally, quote unquote, leave the uh, the garden hose on to dr- you know to just drain out on one part of the course on a perfectly nice, beautiful day, and just make a uh, you know hundred yard long, as Kevin was seven saying, not quite knee deep, but maybe halfway up your shin mud pit that doesn't need to be there. And then I'm thinking, okay, that was unnecessary. <laughs> that was, <laughs> but I've never once been like, oh man, I'm not going to say I, I didn't, I didn't feel like pulling the plug sometimes that's for sure. But like Kevin, I mean, that's, that's one of the things, uh, and that's a whole nother episode, but I, I'm, I'm the first time I ever pulled the plug was in, in 97 and I did it again shortly after that. And I had a mentor sit me down and say, you stop doing that. And I, and I've stopped doing that and I've raced through absolute ridiculous conditions, absolutely ridiculous conditions. And I don't regret, I don't regret that at all. But yeah, in terms of like overall general sweeping statement of bike racing is stupid. No, no. Most negative thought is, is based on me, you know, back um, when I was kind of struggling late nineties, like just catted up and it was often, you know, Oh, you stink, you stink, you stink. And then I learned quickly that that did nothing more than make you stink more. So like get those negative thoughts out of your head, figure it out, train, train differently, train smarter, learn what you got to do and progress from there. So you're saying you got to cut out the stinking thinking. I had to cut out the stinking thinking. That's for sure. <laughs> and, and Brian, I, I would agree with you. I, I don't think I ever, I ever thought the institution of amateur bike racing was stupid. I thought the right the specific instance of this particular race or this particular day or 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 me showing up for this particular day was was uh, was perhaps ill advised. But the institution of <laughs> racing itself was never in question. Uh, well, so so maybe so maybe this is just a Brendan problem then because it's like I, I've. You know, I, I'm I'm not a terrific athlete. I mean, if I if I train a lot uh, and work really hard at it, I I can I can finish somewhere in the mid pack of any race that I ever entered. Except for Brian, the one race that you trained me up for, I, I entered a, the mountain bike uh, race in Ringwood as a, a category three after not racing for almost fifteen or twenty years. And, and I, and I probably could have won that race, except that I bobbled at the end. And the guy who's a sandbagger also beat me by five seconds <laughs> and everybody else in, in the category came in two minutes later. So I was like, that was the one moment I was like, wow, this is freaking awesome. And then I realized I had a cat up immediately. And then the rest of the year I was like, wow, this, sucks. <laughs> uh, but you know, so it, it's, I, I would always find myself, you know, like wondering, it's like, you know, th- this is so hard and requires so much dedication and, and, you know, maybe I don't have, uh, I don't have what it takes to to really be an effective racer so i don't maybe maybe it's stupid maybe it's not um but that's uh, i know brian that you had sent out on facebook uh, i guess this morning or yesterday you were looking for some of the input from racers around the neighborhood uh, as to what their feelings were on bike racing and and again I, and i don't think you know many of the people that were in there were anything more than semi-professional uh, you know, I don't think uh, Tinker Juarez or Ned Overend responded to the, to your uh, question. Uh, what what were some of the responses that you got that were a highlight for you in, in that query? You know, it was it was cool uh, the responses that I got, and not just like kind of from a self confirmation standpoint. But that's what I wanted to see. I wanted to see like, do people kind of feel the same way I do, and like what's intriguing to me, and what keeps me coming back year after year. Is it similar across across the the folks that are out there? And it was cool. I mean, some of those people um, are Facebook acquaintances, they're social media acquaintances. Many of them I've never met face to face, as far as I know, you know. And they, I may have lined them up at one of the races that our team promotes. But besides besides that, there was people I I, I just knew by by name on social media. 
And so, it was, you know, like the, some of the underlying themes were the, the thrill of the competition. I thought that was something that I, I agree with, you know, and I, I remember thinking when I first got into, in particular, mountain bike racing, mountain bike racing was where I started in 93. And uh, I, I remember once I like started understanding about parks and like other trail users and, you know, I stopped being the uh, 21 year old that was <laughs> like, <laughs> You're clueless, um, right out of college type of type of deal. Understanding that, okay, when you're out there training at the local park, you you can't go fast all the time. It, not if you want to be respectable and, and keep mountain bikers there, especially when we were so much under attack in the late '90s. And I'm and I was like, oh my gosh, here's an opportunity. And again, going back to the late '90s when I really was going into, it, there was I, I found the race calendar from 1997 that had 30 races on it, all in the state of New Jersey, 10, 10 of which were in the New Jersey, um, cyclocross, or excuse me, cyclocross, New Jersey cross country race series. So there was 10 races in that series. And then there was 20 other non-series races that you could go to. So here were 30 times throughout the course of that week, that year and pretty much one per weekend. We never, you never, you didn't dream of racing twice in a weekend back then. There were 30 weekends that you could go and race your bike. And what that meant for someone like me was you could go pretty much as fast as you could manage on those trails. And you knew there was not going to be somebody coming the other way at you. And that was a really special. So, so that it it almost sounds like you were racing. So you go fast. You weren't going fast because you were racing. Exactly. Well, they work together. Yep. They definitely (laughs) work together, you know? So, and that, so that was cool. That's that, so that thrill that thrill right there where when you do that on just a normal day on a normal Saturday at a local park, you're like, you know what? I don't know if this is necessarily the most responsible behaviors when the parks are, are, are very crowded, you know, in some places you, if you pick your battles, whatever. Uh, but then another one like that, I, that was just with so many people said, and, and this is for me, the, the camaraderie and the family that you feel in bike racing, you know, I, I kind of equate it to, when you're in school, you have your school friends and sometimes those school friends are you're super tight with them, but you never do anything outside of school with your school friends. You can have racers that you are, at least I, I have this experience and it seems like a number of people that reply to my post have the same, a similar experience. You only see these people at the races. That's it. And maybe you're connected on social media now, but you know, I'm going back 20 years before pre-social media and you know, you have these connections with them. And so you, you know, the last time you see them in is November and then you see them again in March. And it's like, you never left each other and you talk about things and this is a person you want to be and they want to beat you, but you're uh, on the line. You know, you're good, you're good friends. You race hard against each other and you get done and you, you go hang out by your car and you talk about, you know, <laughs> play you, everybody just played bike racer and you talk about how cool that all was. And you see this and you see that and oh man, I was hurting so bad and, and so on and so on. And we share these great stories and you can't wait to, can't wait to do it again. And maybe they beat you or you beat them. And some, it just almost doesn't matter at all in, in many aspects. So it, it just went it, out there. It, so in all of those races, though, how important was winning to you? I mean, was it ever like, I've got to go out, like I'm racing to win or I've got to win or it wasn't worth it if I didn't win? Like, you know, was did you ever have that winning at all costs kind of an attitude or was it really, I'm just going to go out there and lay it all out there and see what happens? I have to say, you know, in, all, in prep for this episode, I also went online and just just, you know, typed into Google why do people compete? And so it wasn't specific for bike racing, just why is competition necessary? And that was one of the categories of, of people that were in there. And it's the win at all costs, which I have a feeling we're going to get to later in terms of the win at all costs. When you get some, you know, some, you enter into some illicit, uh, means to get to the ends of the win. And I can't say I've ever had the win, win at all costs. I have had the, I hope I win because I'll be pretty disappointed if I don't type of thing. And there's not many events that I can say that I go in feeling that confident, but like with proper preparation, I feel like, yeah, I can, I can, I can take this and I'd be pretty bummed. Um, like I said, there's not many, (laughs) I feel that way, but I have, I have felt that way, but I have to say one of the most peaceful experiences I've ever had was preparing for the last state time trial that I ever did. And I had done a lot of, uh, reading on sports psychology and trying to develop myself not only as a, an athlete, but as a coach to help my athletes 
to work through various demons that are in our head and, and be more positive. And one of the takeaways that I had from that book that I, in particular, the book I focused on is I knew I was as prepared as I could be and, and willing to be. So in other words, I, I wasn't waking up at four o'clock in the morning to train that year to get ready for that time trial. It's just not, it's not necessarily part of my dial up. I wasn't that cutthroat, but I was getting my training time in. I was doing what I need to do. And, and I didn't go, you know, lose 15 pounds and get my body weight down to 4% or fat or anything like that. You know, I didn't go, I didn't go bananas, but what I was willing to do from a sacrifice, if you will, standpoint, and the, the training went well, I knew when I went there, regardless of what I got, I was going to be happy with my performance. And I happened to win, which was awesome. You know, so, so it's very easy <laughs> for me to reflect yeah. back and be like, yeah, I would have been happy with my performance if I got anything less than first. But I honestly do. I, I went in with such, so, so much peace. When I, when I towed the line, I, of course I was nervous, the normal the butterflies, but I had so much peace and faith in myself that whatever you do, that's it. And you know, don't, don't overthink it. And so, so that was, that was a really cool experience. So you're happy with the work you put in. And, and so whatever the result was, you could be happy with. Yeah. And I think I would, yep. I would agree with that. And, and, um, Brian, you and I brought, you're probably talking about the same race. I think I did it the same year you did. Um, I think it was the same for me. And, and, you know, my first, I would say probably first two years that I was racing time trials, I didn't, I didn't consider myself to be, um, someone who would win anything. I mean, that's not really why I was doing it. I, I knew I was not at a level yet where I could feel I would, I would be confident saying I could. Um, but I knew, and it's the same thing. I had done the work. I had done everything that I knew that I was willing to do to prepare. And for me, you know, finishing, I don't remember, but finishing somewhere near mid pack, just honestly, just getting through that experience. Um, it was, it's probably the, one of the hardest things, singular things I've ever done in my life and just finishing it and being satisfied with my performance, no matter how I stacked up against everyone else, just completing it in a manner that I felt happy with, I think was an accomplishment in and of itself for me. And that was enough for me to feel happy and to feel happy with my result and want to do it again, which I, you know, eventually, you know, I did do it again the next year. Um, I don't think I improved my finishing position at all, but again, I did it twice and that was an accomplishment, again, an accomplishment in and of itself to do it not only once, but then come back and do it again. So, it, so would you say that your investment of time and energy and money in doing all that, did you, did you get out of it what you were looking for? I think I did. Yeah. I think I, you know, even, you know, again, finishing, you know, overall in the series was, I was maybe mid pack at best. I mean, that was, I think it was the best I could hope for, perhaps even better than I had hoped for. And I think I was happy with that. And I felt like I had accomplished something that, you know, I didn't, that, you know, previously I didn't think I could do. So I think that was fine. So, so Brian, among all of the athletes that you're currently training a, as a coach, uh, and, and I know that you've got like a pretty, a pretty varied portfolio of, of racers, uh, you know, the types, the disciplines and the types of, you know, racing or riding that they're, and what the goals they're setting are. So do you have any people in your, in your roster? You don't have to name names or anything like that, but do you have any of the people that are the win at all costs like attitude? No, no, I, I do not. I do not. And, and just kind of along those lines in terms of, of racing, the, the kind of landscape of coaching, at least from my perspective has, has changed quite a bit in the past six to eight years uh, now a full third of my clients don't compete and have no have expressed no interest in any sort of competition and they just they just want to get better and they just want to get better at a, a, a local group ride or do a fondo and i know many people they're like that's that gray area of right like is that really is that competition or is that not competition so so like for the purest the race the, the pure racist rate rate not a racist <laughs> the pure racer <laughs> out there they might look at that and be like, well, that's not really racing because you don't even know, you know, and then other people are starting to accept that as that. No, that's actual, that is actual racing. So it doesn't really matter the semantics of that at all. But I have, again, I have people that are just interested in doing the group rides when they come back and doing the, 
the, the tours that exist, you know, ha- exist in the area and just doing better at them, just feeling better about themselves. But in terms of the racers, I don't have anybody that's the win at all costs. I think, um, you know, people that I've met that are, the, I would maybe categorize like that. They, um, it's, it's a tough way to live because bec- they, they win or they quit or many of the ones that I've run into over the years. Interesting. All right. So, and, and this is a future episode that we definitely want to do is for people that are not necessarily interested in racing, but the, the, the fitness or, you know, or the cycling fitness or running fitness lifestyle is, you know, something they're interested in and, and how, you know, how coaching and, and specified training can actually help them achieve some things other than just racing, you know, readiness. Uh, but that, but that's a, that's a talk for another day. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, that part of the topic that I wanted to discover here is, you know, professional racing and competition in general, specifically cycling, because, you know, that's, I, I mean, I, I fell in love with cycling, you know, when I saw Greg LeMond as the, you know, the first notable American who was, you know, crushing it in, in the Tour de France and, 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 and learning about how the race worked and all the, you know, the way the team tax were. I mean, for me, it, it's fascinating and I loved watching the Tour de France. Uh, and then along came Lance Armstrong and pretty much ruined it for everybody because, you know, it clearly that, you know, his motivation to win was a win at all costs kind of an attitude. And he said, if I'm going to be the best racer, I'm also going to be the best doper because he knew that, you know, he's an insider and he knew everyone was doing that. And as it turned out, uh, I, you know, in, in the seven years that, that Lance Armstrong won the Tour de France, that he was stripped of those wins they didn't name a winner because they could show that, you know, the, the 20 people after him at some point had been, you know, suspected of or, or you know, nailed for actually doping and cheating at the race or, or other races. Um, so that, you know, that made me really start to question the sport and the value of competition when, you know, when this, the financial stakes are so high that, you know, there are people that will rise to the level that, you know, that they've, they're, you know, I, I don't know what, what makeup it takes in your brain where you get to the point where you will do absolutely anything you can get away with to win. Um, so a, as a fan, you know, is it stupid to be a fan of watching that racing? I mean, is there value in watching that or, or any more than there's value in watching, you know, the worldwide uh, wrestling uh, enterprise or whatever the WWE <laughs> is? I mean, is it really different in that sense? Is it choreographed the same way? So... So, okay. So, um, before we start the discussion, I figured I would drop some statistics here to, uh, to sort of provide a basis of facts here. Um, so the, uh, the world anti-doping association, um, which is an independent, uh, you know, nonprofit organization that, uh, that polices, uh, doping across all sports, not just cycling, um, and works closely with the governing bodies of, of the sports to, to sort of maintain certain regulations. So they publish a report um, every year um, showing some statistics about um, the rate of um, what they call um, adverse analytical findings um, based on, you know, across, across all of sports. Um, so in order to frame this discussion, um, I figured I'd look into some of those numbers. So what I found was that, um, cycling, uh, as a sport accounted for about 18% of all anti-doping rule violations across all of sports. Um, and that's the third most behind weightlifting and track and field. Um, however, uh, on the other side of that, um, during the 2017, uh, during 2017, just under 24,000 uh, samples of various kinds were tested from cycling athletes across all cycling disciplines. Of those about 24,000, about 1% were flagged as adverse analytical findings. Um, and about 60, 60% of those adverse analytical findings were then ruled to be um, uh, rules violations. So that's about 0.7% of all samples tested. Um, which is a slightly higher rate of, uh, of flags based on uh, versus track and field, but slightly lower than weightlifting. Again, those top three sort of uh, contributors to, um, to uh, doping violations, so to speak. 
Um, so that's some interesting numbers to sort of uh, kick that off. Well, so but let me break that down to to one easy to digest chunk. So it, at a high level competition where there's likely to be testing, if there's more than a hundred people there, one of them is likely to be cheating. In an oversimplified way, yes. <laughs> well, that's all. I'm I'm pretty simple. So Brian, I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, is it you know is it worth considering that? Is that something that's ever in your mind when you're, you know, when you consider the fact that uh, you know was it two seasons ago the Grand Fonda New York the you know the Masters guy that came in third got busted for you know doping with EPO right? Right. Yes, as far as I understand. So, you know, so is that, is that something that you ever think about? Like, you know, it, it, am I, am I in a, in a place where, you know, it, if people are cheating, you know, how do I feel about that as a racer and as a fan, how do I feel about that? I, I feel like those are two, two, at least in my mind, those are two separate or at least I handle them two in two different ways. One as a racer, it's very easy to, to, fall into that mindset of, oh, well, X, Y, Z only beat me or they're doing so well because they must be taking something. It's super easy to throw that around, you know, even in a joking way. We like to do things to, you know, make yourself feel better about yourself <laughs> and, and, and true or not. Do I think it exists in amateur sports? hundred percent. I mean, it, it, tuning exists in our world. It happens. I was thinking about it as I was on my bike ride tonight, thinking about this conversation and you can buy cheaters monopoly, monopoly now. I mean, you used to cheat as a kid monopoly and do whatever, hide the cars or hide the money and things like that. Now it's actually, uh, there's a version of that game that's encouraged. It happens, happens, you know, in in finance. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) It happens in finance. You know, it happens in the business world. It happens everywhere. And it happens with bribes here and there with, and politicians and everybody, right? There's, there's bad acts. You, you put any sort of profession in there, there's bad acts. So in the amateur level, it, is it disappointing to think that people are cheating? Definitely. Is it enough to make me want to throw my hands up in the air and give up? A hundred percent not. I mean, I've been in races where people have gone under the tape. I know it for a fact. In one race, I was... I, I was given the win because the the person who did have first place admitted to it. And, and, and that was extra disappointing because I'll, yeah, so it was kind of cool to win, but I'll never know if I could have really won. You know, had he played by the rules, would I have beaten him anyway? I, I don't know. Or maybe he would have beaten, I don't know. You know, I don't know how that would have shaken down, but I'll tell you what. I couldn't wait for my next race after that. I was still so fired. I didn't just didn't discourage me at all. But I do think I'm a I'm a rare a rare ish case in, in terms of that. You know, just with longevity, there there's not many folks that have been racing, and that's not not bragging. It's just just fact. Like there's not many fa- folks that have been racing as long. There's a lot of downsides to it. I mean, there's a whole lot of downsides to, to amateur bike racing. But for me, the potential of Cheating in terms of doping is not one, and it's not big enough, a big enough con to make me stay out of it. From a fan, because I am a fan as well, and there's bike racers who are not fans of, of watching bike racing. I think it's the little kid in me that I'm kind of okay if it's if it's a fairy tale, you know. If I've heard it called the tour, you know, tour de tour de farce and, mm-hmm. and everything else. I don't think it's quite as bad as WWF because it's not completely scripted because different things can happen. You know, people crash. I don't think they're crashing on purpose to change the outcome of the, of the race or anything like that. Do I think a fair number of professional bike racers are cheating? I do. Do I think there's more not cheating? I do because I think more would get caught and maybe that's naive. I don't know. Maybe, and maybe they just figured out ways around whatever, whatever it might be, you know, it's out of competition doping that they're doing more and so it's out of their system by the time i, I don't know well and, and um, I, I but i think they're also you know they're the pro teams seem to all be looking for ways to kind of you know they're put they're always pushing the envelope right you know they say okay let's push right up to the line and see how far we can push it because we we want to win where we're going to test this part of the system uh you know what is it uh, it was uh you know team sky you know the sumbuterol was that the, the albuterol, thing they were, albuterol. That, yeah. and I mean, that right. yeah, therapeutic use exemptions and all that yeah 
Yeah, and and there were other things that they were. I think there were there was some kind of blood thing that they were doing also that was not technically against the rules, but probably should have been. I don't remember the exact details, but I know that they were they were spending tons of money on trying to, you know, take the you know they they bought the best athletes they could get, and then they pushed yeah. them even further, you know, and and uh, yeah, you know, well, so, you, I think that's a really it's a really neat fact that that Kevin brought that the top three are individual sports, so nowhere else. Can a player on a team, and we'll call it, you know, so a player on Team X for bike racing, a bike racing Team X, and no, and no other sport really besides those other individual ones, can one individual do something to enhance themselves to increase the, the team's chance of winning as much? I don't think, you know, like a football player, yeah, the quarterback I, I could do steroids, but it's not going to make that big of a, an impact in terms of the whole game. So you're not going to have that same kind of turnaround and also i mean how many of them are getting tested i'm not and i'm not picking on football i just i mean let's face it there's some doping going on in, in the other professional sports as well well, well, well big one right i remember you know mark mcguire and well, sammy too. sosa i mean mark those, yeah those guys were having a big out a big impact on the outcome of the game though you know a guy comes in and hits three home runs in the true. course of a game i mean that's a pretty big advantage that's absolutely true yep that is absolutely true yeah, for sure. So and for sure, and, and those guys all get an asterisk next to their name. You know, in a record book, it's like, yeah, Mark McGuire was, is, you know, he had sixty-four home runs in a season, but there's a, you know, there's a star yeah. next to it, meaning, yeah, but he cheated. So, you know, you can disregard it. I I think that, um, and maybe and Brian, I think I'm I'm kind of agreeing with you on this, but, um, I think to me there's there's a certain mystique about seeing who we consider to be professionals or the, the best of, or who is considered to be the best of the bust. I think there's a certain mythos about seeing those individuals compete in, in a sport that I also compete in and to see the, and having some sort of look into the, or having a knowledge of what's required to be successful and to see them execute it and to see the results that occur. I think that's really cool as someone who participates in the same sport. And I, I think there's a certain mystique to that, that I really enjoy, which is why I think as a, as both a, a bike racer and a fan, I think I can, you know, adds another dimension of it to me. Um, do I think that, you know, that the, the professional cycling has a reputation for, you know, having prolific cheaters? Yes, definitely. And it's been pretty well publicized. And I think it's, I think those, those reports are not untrue. However, I think it's moving in the right direction. Again, that might be naive of me, um, but I think that um, detection methods are getting better. I think that um, because of that bad reputation, um, the teams and the and the the organizations involved in professional cycling, for their own, I mean, perhaps for their own selfish interest, but it still works in the same way. They want to distance themselves from the individuals and bad actors that are participating in those activities because it's bad for business. Um, and I think that that, I mean, as, as selfish as that might be, the same, the end result is the same that, um, that, uh, cheating or, or doping is not encouraged for various reasons. Um, and I think that that's all a step in the right direction, whether that's negative reinforcement or not. I think it's all, it's all a step in the right direction. And I also think that a lot of the, um, younger athletes coming up in the sport have not grown up in a world or grown up in a, in a sport that has been ruled by, uh, by bad actors. I think they're growing up in a sport that is more cognizant of the bad reputation it's gotten and is trying to improve and has impressed upon them the importance of staying clean um, and, uh, and in order to solidify their continued success. All right. So Brian, so, so do you think that that's, that's the case? I mean, do you see that that making a change in, in the sport itself that, uh, you know, that, that the, the anti-doping efforts of these organizations is, is changing the culture. I do. And again, like Kevin said to reiterate what he said, uh, I might be naive and I know I used that word before and I, I've been called that before in terms of my view of professional bike racing, but I just absolutely love it so much. So as much as I want to believe that a human being can do what those men and women, you know, let's not, it's not gender biased here. You know, men and women can do, I want to believe that an individual can do that 
clean. I also want to fully believe that the the landscape of the sport is changing. So, which Kevin just put into words so eloquently. So, so do you have confidence in the in the the testing regimes and the testing organizations to, you know, while people there will always be people that are attempting to game the system somehow. Do you have more confidence? In, in the testing protocols and, and, and organizations in a way that can make you feel better about, uh, you know, feeling good about a race. You know, you're watching the Tour de France or the Giro d'Italia or the, you know, Tour de España. I mean, any of those races, can you feel better about rooting for an unknown outcome knowing that the, you know, the anti-doping regimes are, are at least somewhat effective? Uh, put a qualifier in the, on there. Better than when? Uh, better than 1999 through 2005. Uh, yeah, 100. <laughs> percent And perhaps even perhaps even the entirety of the 90s. I would I would argue. Yes. <laughs> yeah. If you said five years ago, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can say is it better now than five years ago because I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. I'm also this is an area I I don't think I'm naive in as much as anti-doping is trying to stay ahead of it. The the dopers and the scientists there are maybe one step ahead, unfortunately. It's kind of like the virus and the antivirus software, and maybe it's all one and the same. You know, I don't know. <laughs> is, is there, you know, one mastermind is, is are the people <laughs> sitting at Norton also creating the viruses that Norton's uh, protecting us from? I don't know. Yeah. And so, but I, I, I don't think they're going to stop trying. I don't think people will stop trying to cheat. I don't think that's the case at all. Right. But I do have to believe from a chemical standpoint the tests are better and they're more aware of ways and things that are going on. So it's harder to do and I can feel better about watching a race then. Kevin? That's how I feel. Right. And, and also the, uh, you know, as a, you know, the, the world anti-doping association has changed there in recent years has changed their entire sort of concept on, on testing. Um, whereas you're, they're still doing those, you know, in competition tests, but they're also, um, being able to um, aggregate, you know, data over over a long period of time in order to monitor, you know, changes in an athlete's physiology over time, which is really the important thing. Uh, and that's the, you know, that's the way that a lot of athletes have been able to, in the past, or recent history, have been able to get around it is that they can, they can sort of time their peaks in order to, you know, in order to avoid when they may possibly be tested more. Um, but with the availability of more data, um, they can track those changes over a longer period of time and be able to, you know, see if there's any, you know, spikes or peaks where, which don't seem natural. And also factoring in that human bodies are not a fixed point. Human bodies have, you know, your physiology will change day to day, month to month, week to week, depending on conditions. So, being able to track those data points over a long period of time and establish a baseline that's, that's, um, you know, accurate for an individual, I think is important. And every individual is different. You can't judge everyone on the same. Oh, ruler. Kevin, I think you've just helped me open up a new giant can of worms. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and, and sorry, Brian, I know I kind of have to go right now. And I, and, and this is a, this is a really, really touchy, uh, subject within the world of, uh, you know, high-level amateur and professional athletics, uh, cycling and track and field in particular, I think, is, uh, you know, now, you know, transgender athletes who are, you know, are, are transitioning from one, you know, gender identification to another, you know, male to female, uh, and they want to participate in high-level athletic competition you know, and, and so they're, you know, they started out with the physiology, the performance physiology of a man, and now they want to, you know, they want to participate in, in a, a category that may not have the same physiological advantages. And, and so now as, as part of a, a competitive landscape, how do we deal with that? How should we think? I mean, how, how should we feel about it? I don't know if that's an answer that we really want to talk about here, but, you know, this is something that I think is going to become more and more of a question over time. Yeah, agreed. Um, it is a question that not that long ago was not a question, and and now it's one that certainly needs to be addressed. And as a the governing bodies need to figure out an equitable way to approach this 
for sure. And, you know, and, and some of them just go back to weightlifting. As far as I understand in, in weightlifting, it's not acceptable and powerlifting. Uh, if I understand the, the, the direction that they went with it right now. And then in other sports, they have been tightening up on the levels, you know, dropping down the levels or up the whatever, whatever it might be. So that it's not so gray the in between there uh on terms of the on terms of the levels i i don't i don't know i certainly am not going to pretend i have uh, an answer or a solution on that it's uh yeah it's one that does need to be addressed though and it needs and, and it needs to be figured out so the, there, there's a part of me in my head uh, and and i i'm not trying to be controversial but you know there's a part of me in my head that that thinks that you know, that the question can kind of explode our, our current view and understanding of competitive athletics in a way that I like it, it's, you know, it, it's such an unknown territory and, and how are we going to deal with it? I mean, it, it, it seems like it, it could just blow up the whole, you know, competitive landscape in a way that I'm not sure how we deal with it after the, uh, after the explosion settles down. Yeah, I don't know either. I kind of feel like, you know, when a number of years ago, when scientists first, I don't know, first, they've probably been doing it for a lot longer than the, the public was aware of or kind of became more of the more mainstream. But genetic manipulation, you know, what happens when that gets involved or what happens when they can start doing, uh, you know, like cybernetic en- enhancements. And, you know, I know there was the question of an individual running track with prosthetics and they were get providing according to some a physical advantage then to have those prosthetics and other folks looked at it and said but the person has no legs be below their knees so how can that be an advantage so yeah there's uh kind of science if you will has posed presented a whole slew of new questions for us to address to we want sports to be fair, right? And when the definition of fair is, of course, questionable, but that's what the, the spectator wants and that's what the participant wants that feel like everybody has a fair shake at it and that it's that it's real. All right. Well, I, I think we'll leave that one there. I don't want to get you know, any deeper into that one, but I, you oh. know, it's just, a, it's another thing on the event horizon. Um, so I, I think, uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm off the ledge now. Maybe bike racing isn't stupid. Uh, <laughs> maybe that was just a momentary uh, <laughs> issue that I had. Cause I mean, I do love, I love watching a good bike race uh, and, and it is fun and exciting and, and I hope it's going to continue uh, to be that way. Um, so it looks like we've got uh, at least 66% of the panel today voting for bike racing is not stupid. And you, <laughs> and you guys did fight me and you won. <laughs> so okay. that's, a, that's a good positive outcome. You know what I I think I feel like so it's it's two separate things that you can like watching watching bike racing and not like bike race. It's actually it's almost like three different people, right? You can like watching it and not like participating in it. You can like participating in it and not like watching it. You could do both. Actually, you could say four people, then you could do neither. I don't like riding a bike or yeah. <laughs> or racing a bike or watching. Bikes. I hate. I want I, nothing to do. With it. I hate everything about bicycles. <laughs> exactly. And then there's you know. Like, I'd be, I'd be type number four. I like bike racing and I believe in it and I like watching bike racing and I believe in it. So, uh, and I think that it's, it's healthy to have debates on that. And it's also cool as a bike racer, I try to introduce bike racing to people, but I've always said this, that it's just far too hard to do if you don't love it. And the last thing I ever want to see is somebody hang up their bike because of bike racing. Right now, there's no events for us to go to and participate in besides things that are online. And that's a whole nother story right there. Um, But I I still ride. I still train as if I have some races coming up. You know, I'm not training hard right now or anything, but I I still have the hope that there will be races at some point this year. I don't know, and and Brendan, maybe this wasn't on your agenda for this conversation, but um, as the, and and I guess I could, you know, chime in on this as well. As someone who's, uh, you know, I'm involved in the bicycle industry, um, do you think, or what impact do you think bicycle competition has on the industry as a whole? Oh God, I, 
from my perspective and having been in it for so long, I think bike racing for the industry might be one of the worst possible things. And, and I will explain why. So, you know, the, the bicycle industry kind of, you know, evolved and grew up from what I like to call super enthusiasts. There are people that like me, I mean, I'm, I'm a super enthusiast. I love bicycles. I mean, I'm, I'm insanely in love with bicycles. I love everything about bicycles. And, and I think the industry is run by people who are like that. And so, you know, the entire industry has grown up on, on innovation through bicycle racing, uh, you know, to the, to the detriment of virtually every other type of, of use for a bicycle. Right. I mean, there's not, you know, you don't have people, you know, like tripping over themselves to create new and interesting ways to put a touring bike together. I mean, a touring bicycle really hasn't changed appreciably in a hundred years, but racing bikes are evolving to, you know, perform better every year. And so we, we focus a lot of our time and energy on, on racing bicycles. And, and I think sometimes that's where we lose a lot of people who, who would, uh, you know, enjoy riding a bicycle, but they're so intimidated by this whole, you know, this whole racing head culture. I mean, I, I saw a thing on Twitter the other day about, uh, uh, I, I forget exactly what the point was, but it was a woman was commenting on, on bicycles in the industry and how, uh, you know, the fact that, that the entire thing is run by white men who are in love with bicycles is, is not necessarily good for the sport or, or cycling at large. Cause you know, cycling covers a, a pretty, uh, a pretty wide range of, uh, of things. Um, but what I like to say is as a super enthusiast in the industry, anyone who rides a bicycle is a winner. And so from that standpoint, you know, maybe competition matters or not, but anyone that's using a bicycle for any purpose is better off than someone who's not. So you don't believe in the uh, race on Sunday, sell on Monday attitude that may be carried over from motorsport? Nope, because based on based on the sales statistics of what's going on in the industry, you know, even before the COVID pandemic thing was, you know, putting a big kibosh on a lot of the sales of these higher end racing bikes, <laughs> racing bicycles as a business has has been, you know, plummeting over the past five five to eight years. Okay. So it's good to know. No, and, and we're seeing those, you know, as a racer and a, and a race promoter, I've been promoting this, this would be my 25th year as a race promoter in it. And that has a question mark by it. We've seen our numbers ebb and flow, but right now they're on a, on an ebb. Is that low? Is that going low? Yeah. 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 We're on low. It's, it's, it's not good. I mean, events are being canceled left, right, and center. I'm not, and I'm talking pre, pre, uh, pandemic here, uh, and that's across the board. It's it's cyclocross. It's road. Gra- no gravel. Let's not even get into that one. Gravel <laughs> events are are huge. Yeah, but but again, huge, but, huge, huge. Well, well, they're sort of huge, right? And and this is another thing where sort of where where, exactly. where gravel bikes became like you know people in the Midwest who had you know hundreds and hundreds of miles of these non-paved gravel farm roads were using cyclocross bikes to to ride on. They never got into racing, or they were maybe having you know it's kind of like how mountain biking started out. But they just started like riding these bikes and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, we realize the cyclocross bike is not ideal for riding 150 miles on a gravel road because the wheelbase is too short and the steering is too quick. So they created, you know, they kind of reorganized the geometry of the bike to make it more suitable. And then all of a sudden now it's a racing thing again. And, and, And the industry takes this whole racing concept and throws it onto every category to the point yep. of ridiculousness of where the UCI actually has an E mountain bike category. You, you can race on an electric mountain bike. Now, we're get, we have another episode coming up about uh, our e-bikes cheating. But in this particular instance, using a motorized bike seems like cheating to me. But, you know, if you're going to race on it and, and the industry has decided or, or, the, or the racing sanctioning bodies have decided that in order to help the industry sell some bikes, they have to throw racing on top of it. It's like it's maddening. It is because we honestly, like I'm, I'm not foolish enough to it. Uh, to say that we're a large portion of the pop, the bike riding population. We're, we're tiny, but we live in this little fantasy world that, Oh, you know, the racers are sorry, sorry, fellow racers, but we're so <laughs> self-important here, but it is, it's perpetuated because you go on some of the, the major, you know, global bicycle manufacturers, you go on their website and, and often one of the first images that you see is somebody crossing the line in the tour de France and whether that's supposed to inspire somebody to buy a bicycle, but I don't know if that inspires somebody to buy their, their hybrid. It, that, it doesn't. That's what they, that's the main 
maybe that's the type of bicycle they should be buying. They shouldn't be buying some twitchy race bike, you know, with, with 25 C tires yeah. that, you know, that, no, they shouldn't be buying. That's them. absolutely true. Get a hybrid. And, and the industry, but the industry spends the bulk of its marketing money to that, to that teeny, teeny, tiny niche of, of human beings that want to ride yep. bicycles. And, and, I and think, most of us are going to do it even without the advertising. Right. And I think they're, <laughs> so I think it's a little bit of preaching to the choir, but I also think it's a bit, it comes off as a bit exclusionary to people who are, who are never, ever going to even consider com- competing on their bike. And they, you know, if they, they want to go buy a bike they're you know, and then they go on the website and the first thing they see is this, you know, is this, uh, you know, super skinny guy on a racing bike, you know, summiting Mount Von too, like, you know, in this, you know, cyclists come in all shapes and sizes and this person is going to feel intimidated. This person is going to feel like, oh, I don't belong in this club. Yeah, this is not for me. Right. And then they're going to not do it. And I think that's not, I don't think that's the right move. I I think that that's, that's definitely not the right sort of community that I think that cycling should be. All right. So, so in that vein, then I will, so bike racing is stupid from that standpoint. So that's one for me. There you go. I figured I'd throw that one to you because I appreciate that. All right. Well, I, I think we, I think we pretty well beat this. Uh, we, we beat this horse to death. Uh, and so, uh, that we should wrap it up. Uh, I would like to thank our guest coach, Brian Laravere of BJL coaching. Brian, tell us how we can get in touch with you to find out how we can be our best selves on our cycling adventures. Can I make one closing comment before we do that? Yes, but then, but then tell us how we get in touch with you because we, we're, we're coming Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Real, real quick, real <laughs> quick. I think we could all, let's all agree that, okay, bike, bike racing may be stupid, but bicycles are awesome. So however, however you want to use your bicycle, whether it's to do a race or do a ride. I will agree. Bicycles are awesome. I agree with that. <laughs> so, you know, we can agree on that. So, yes, my name is Brian Laravere, BJL Coaching, and that's bjlcoaching at gmail.com. Awesome, Brian. Give me a holler. And and uh, and having been coached by you, I will uh, throw you a uh, an endorsement completely. That uh, if you want to get better at ride the bike, Brian is your guy. And I'll second that. Thank you. And Kevin seconds that as <laughs> well. All right. Well, that will do it for us this week. And uh, Kevin, why don't you take us out? Uh, Bicycles to the Rescue is a dog on a bike media production, written and produced by Brendan Poe and Kevin Eng, with generous support from the Cyclecraft Cycling Center located on Route 46 in Parsippany, New Jersey, and on the World Wide Web at CycleCraft.com. And if you'd like to throw any commentary at us about this or any other episode, go ahead and shoot me an email at brendan at CycleCraft.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts uh, and questions on any of these topics. See you next time. See you next time.